0: Is an Odyssey original.
1: This is KNX in depth. I'm Mike Simpson.
0: And I'm Chris Seaton's and today for Charles Feldman. Have you ever wondered how so many former members of Congress end up leaving Washington, D.C.? Far wealthier than when they got there. Well, a New York Times analysis may help answer that question. It found 97 lawmakers or their family members bought or sold financial assets over a three-year span in industries that could be affected by their legislative committee work. One of them... California Senator, our senior Senator, Dianne Feinstein, two other House members here in Southern California as well. We'll go in, in depth on that. The looming rail workers' strike could have a major impact on the economy. We'll go in depth on that. And speaking of the economy, we could seen, uh, soon see a spike in layoffs in the white-collar world. Queen Elizabeth has left Buckingham
1: Palace for the final time. People lining up in London to view her coffin, pay their final respects. Death of the Queen has raised a lot of issues about colonialism. We'll take a look at that and the legacy there. The CDC has a new health alert about respiratory illnesses in kids and a small chance they could develop something even worse. And more and more people around the country no longer identifying as Christian. We will try to find out why.
0: We start, though, with members of Congress and stock trades. Adam Playford is a reporter for The New York Times. He's also co-author of the analysis done by the paper on this issue. Adam, thanks for joining us here on In-Depth. First of all, would any of this be considered illegal?
2: Probably not, no. You know, the rules, I mean... Congress members are uh, not allowed to insider trade, just like you or me or anyone else. Um, but there really are no other rules uh, aside from they have to disclose the trade than their family members
1: make. This has been a story that, like we said at the outset, people have wondered, how do they get so rich? And, and there has been some rules put on them. There was the, the Stock Act. But even then, to your point, it doesn't stop them from, from doing some of this. If you're involved with a committee and you're investigating someone or you have oversight of something, you can still trade stocks right you just have to tell us later on
2: absolutely yep
1: now how much money are they making on some of these trades and and does it always happen in a in a way that can be explained because what we see a lot is oh this was my husband or my wife or it was my broker and i don't bring my work home and so they had no idea
2: right yeah they're very those are the the most common answers my broker does it my uh, husband or wife does it it. sometimes my child did it if it's even if it's a young child. (laughs) <laughs> My five year old did
1: money...
2: it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, you can't always tell how much money they made, in part because it's not something they really have to disclose. And they use really wide ranges. Um, so it's very hard to get a picture. But, you know, some some of these people trade a lot of money and, um, you know, they say they're wealthy or came to Congress wealthy. But you see some really you know large, large numbers.
0: Does this explain why so many lawmakers tend to leave Congress more wealthy than when they got there?
2: That's a great question, uh, and you know, I mean, I think uh, what the members would say is that they, you know, invest in the market like everyone else, and it grows over time. Um, there have been different analyses, and you know, some people point to specific uh, examples of people who seem to do quite well on their trades, and uh, some studies show that on average they'd be better off just in a in a market fund. Uh, it's a little hard to kind of tell because the disclosures don't give you a lot of information.
1: There's a a few different things, and we mentioned some of this before. You know, you can have oversight over areas of the economy, and that's one thing. And then you can actually investigate, which is something Congress does. And and your article points out that one of our congressmen here, Alan Lowenthal, sold the wife, his wife, uh, sold some Boeing shares. And that was really close to when that committee that he's on released a report about Boeing.
2: Yeah, the day before,
0: the day before. Uh, And it was... Well, go ahead.
2: Sorry. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the most... One of the things we were most surprised by, to be honest, and we hadn't kind of, you know, people have focused on this issue of Congress members trading for a long time on and off. And there have been lots of conversations about people doing these trades just that on their face seem uh, uh, very close to what they're doing. Um, but the you know, examples, one of, some of the most surprising examples we found were like that one, um, people trading in companies that uh, they were kind of their committees were actively investigating at the time.
0: The fallout. From your report, your, your analysis, do you, do you get the feeling it points to the fact that maybe there needs to be more oversight on this issue in, in our nation's capital?
2: Well, certainly there are some members of Congress who want that. And there's a bill uh, right now pending that would ban no stock trading. Actually, just a couple hours ago, uh, Nancy Pelosi came out and said that there would be uh, some legislative proposal um, that uh, she kind of characterized as fairly stringent that uh, they thought would move uh, sometime this month. But uh, we don't have too many details about what's in it yet.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you can't also get away from the elephant in the room. It's like they have to self-regulate themselves. And if it's in their benefit to do that, are they really going to do it at the end of the day?
2: Uh, Your your guess is as good as (laughs) mine. Let's see what happens.
0: Adam Playford, reporter (laughs) there at The New York Times. Adam, thanks. The White House is involved in talks trying to avoid a railway, uh, railway. railroad workers strike. More than 115,000 people will be allowed to uh, walk off the job as early as Friday. This would impact Amtrak lines and others across the country. Some business groups are saying a strike would have an immediate impact on the U.S. economy. Michael Golder is a supply chain expert professor at the Weatherhead School of Management at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. Michael, thank you for joining us today. First of all, just how disruptive would this be to the U.S. economy?
3: So uh, thank you very much for having me. And if if the strike happens, I think it'll be very disruptive, like more disruptive than COVID was two years ago.
1: So super disruptive um, because what? Do we forget how much actually travels on rail? Because it's just about everything. And I saw a line today saying the White House is talking with the truckers, seeing if they can catch up any of the slack here. And the truckers responded, are you kidding me? There's no (laughs) way we have enough drivers to do any of this.
3: So I think this is exactly point. I mean, about 30% or a little less of our goods flows by rail today. And if we get 3% out or most of it out, then we have to deal with the shortage of truck drivers we have right now. So there's no way they can make up that that slack. And what happens is they're just going to stop moving.
0: Do you see a light at the end of the tunnel here? Uh, is there a way this can get resolved quickly before this looming Friday deadline?
3: So I, um, I, I, the negotiations, um, I, I think uh, there's a whole lot of leverage for the people that are um, looking for a quick settlement because of how uh, really incredibly problematic this could be. If the strike does happen, even if it only happens for a few days, it'll take much longer than the length of the strike to catch up because we'll have to go back to moving all the goods that we were moving, plus make up for the slack. So I'm worried that even a even a three-day strike, and I just made up three days, I don't know, could take us a week or two weeks to play catch-up, and we'll start seeing problems in between.
1: So no good in any scenario. They have a, a contract under the, the labor law that says that the president can step in and, and avert a strike and keep the workers on the job, but he already did that once, right? Can he do that twice? You know, that's a good question. Oh, your, your phone's kind of breaking up there. Let's see if we can get you back. It, It cut off whether he can or cannot. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Looks like we're losing the line there. So, uh, Michael, thank you. The last part was important. I don't know if he will. And I've seen some discussion that because he did it once, he can't. So Congress maybe could. But then some of the Democrats in Congress are saying, well, I don't know if we would actually pull the trigger on this one and get them to stop. So uh, there's all sorts of different negotiations going on. We've obviously talked about how Amtrak is affected because a lot of the lines uh, that the passenger rail goes on are
0: on those on, yeah, these these lines, lines, the freight the the lines, yeah. And we, and we should also point out that we're already seeing ramifications. We were reporting yesterday here on KNX that there were two routes, Amtrak routes, uh, one, I believe, between Chicago and L.A., the other one, um, I think, a location in New Mexico, that uh, they're already canceling trips because of the, the potential that people could be left stranded because of the other uh, looming strike. We might have Michael
1: back. Let, let's give this one more try. I, I've already noticed something. There was some talk this morning, too, that things are already starting to slow down because some of this stuff, whether it's perishable or hazardous or what have you, they don't want to send it out now, even given the possibility that we might strike on Friday. So we might already be slowing down. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Uh, Is my is my line better now? We got you. Yes. Okay. super. So, you know, it's it's useful to think about what happens and when it happens, because before the strike, as you just said, Goods that are particularly sensitive, things that are highly perishable or things that are hazardous, uh, are being pulled off the railroad so they don't get stuck in who knows where. Um, if the strike does happen, we'll see within a matter of days some shortages showing up at, at retail, um, and we'll all see that. But the really bad stuff, in my opinion, would happen about seven or ten days later because a lot of the goods moving by truck. Is moving in between factories and distribution centers, and we could see we could see a significant number of factories just shut down because they can't get parts. Um, and when we start seeing that at retail, it's going to be uh, an avalanche.
1: We'll see what happens, Michael Golder, supply chain expert, professor, of the Weatherhead School of Management, Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. Uh, that cooling off period is expiring early Friday morning.
0: Well, coming up, we look at the uh, criticisms of Queen Elizabeth over British colonialism, and a new report shows Christianity seems to be on the decline these days here in the United States. Right now, though, economic
1: slowdown might hit white-collar workers harder than those in the blue-collar sector. Layoffs have already started in tech and entertainment. We've talked about Netflix before. There have been layoffs in real estate. With us is William Lee, chief economist at the Milken Institute, who can explain why this is the case. Uh, William, thanks for being here. Why is this the case?
4: (laughs) Well, this is the first time in my professional uh, memory that I can remember a slowdown uh, slow down, uh Probably hitting the more vulnerable white-collar workers than blue-collar workers. And that, the reason why is because uh, blue-collar workers, especially with Amazon warehouse workers, truck drivers, are in high demand. Uh, the chain let, let
1: me let me jump in here because we're having some, some problems with the line. I don't know. The phones are going haywire today. Uh, we'll put you on hold for just a second, William. we will pick you up out there, and, and we can see if we can get that a little bit better because I'm hearing the crackling. Uh, yeah. but, but his first point is one that I think we can all realize. mm mm-hmm. A lot of these, these workers on the blue-collar side, we need more than we currently have. I mean, yeah. trucking and the yeah, shortages, yeah. Amazon warehouse workers, all of these goods and all of these um, these backlogs that we have. We just talked about the rail strike mm-hmm. and how bad things can get. So these are in very high demand. These jobs, the white-collar jobs, everybody staffed up after the pandemic. Um, you know, there was so much uncertainty for for two years almost mm-hmm. when we were coming, quote-unquote, out of it. Right. Everybody
0: started hiring again. Yeah. Let's bring on more people. we and- got more stuff to do. And now it's like... We might be a little overloaded. Well, you've got to wonder about the trickle-down effect as well, too. If it's affecting the white-collar workers, then is the next ball to, to drop the the blue-collar workers, do they need to worry? Is it a sign that we may be edging closer and closer to a recession as well? William, I think we have you back. Are you with us?
4: Yes, I am. Uh and, Mike, and let me let me just continue where we were uh, when we the technology sort of came in the way. Uh, the, the reason why the blue-collar workers have such demand is because our supply chains are so dependent on truck drivers and people at the warehouses. But the white-collar workers that traditionally have been very protected, uh, like entry-level bookkeepers, data entry people, they're being made more and more obsolete by technology. A lot of accounting firms are employing data and they data point of cell terminals, but you don't need these, these low level uh, white collar guys anymore. So, so that, those are the ones that will likely be laid off if the economy slows down or when the economy slows down, which is a more likely the case.
0: Do, do blue collar workers, because of what we're seeing with white collar workers, do they need to worry about the shoe dropping in their direction?
4: definition of a blue-collar worker these days has really upskilled. Uh, it's no longer the guy who could just drive the forklift. It's the guy who can operate the robotics panel at the Amazon warehouse, or the guy who is really good on rollerblades. Uh, and, and I think one of the things that we have to realize is that because of the shortage of people who really want to get into the skilled trades, like I mean, and electricians and, and, and so on, uh, there's a shortage of people out there um, who are willing to do these jobs. So that's why these so-called blue-collar jobs are, are really technologically upgraded because companies have gone into the business of upgrading uh, and, and, and slimming down the requirement of using manual labor uh, and using technology computers and automation.
1: If we're talking fields, uh, we mentioned, you know, entertainment, but tech, finance, you were talking about there's more computer systems that can do this now, um, real estate too, that kind of stuff, banking maybe?
4: Yep, absolutely. And, and the places where you didn't need a lot of, um, of adaptability to, to, to run the equipment, uh, and you just were a manual kind of data entry person or, or someone who was at the lowest level of accounting where they were just a bookkeeper, those people are going to be made more and more obsolescent by the more in technology. Uh, and and, and, and the, the, the white-collar people who are doing very well, are the ones who are the most adaptable, the ones who can come on a scene and say, hey, I can make your business run better. I have a better idea for your business model. Instead of having a restaurant that has very expensive dining areas, why don't we start working in ghost kitchens? So the shorter chefs who are able to work ghost kitchens are, are doing very, very well, whereas the chefs who are, are, are stuck in the, the, the traditional diner are not doing well.
1: William Lee, Chief Economist, Milken Institute. William, thanks.
0: You're listening to KNX in depth along with Mike Simpson. Chris Sedens in today. The UK continues to be in a period of mourning following the death
1: of Queen Elizabeth, her coffin taken by horse drawn carriage from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Hall.
0: A long line of people formed, and now that she's lying in state until her funeral as they gathered passed by and pay their respects with us now from london christo fufas royal commentator tv presenter in the uk christo uh, set a scene for us paint us a picture what are you seeing what have you you've seen so far on this very somber day in london
5: it, it has been a somber day in london however the mood um which i'll get to in a moment has has been somber in parts but some people breaking into spontaneous applause Some people just wanting to say thank you in any way that they could. As the Queen's casket left Buckingham Palace, it was at 2.22 on the dot this afternoon, UK time, as that gun carriage loaded with the Queen's coffin draped in the blue, red and yellow royal standard representing the different nations of the United Kingdom with the Queen's imperial crown with all of those jewels placed on top that gun carriage with the funeral march playing with the blues and royals and with the royal artillery all of the military honors around her as they made that slow walk from Buckingham Palace the Queen's final journey from the residence in which she lived for over 70 years down the Mall down Constitution Hill through Horse Guards Parade down Whitehall around Parliament Square Into the Westminster Hall, where she now lays in state, followed on that procession by, of course, many of the senior members of the royal family the new King Charles, the Princess Royal, uh, the the future King of England William, now the Prince of Wales, Prince Harry, uh, her other two children as well, Prince Edward and Andrew. And I mentioned the mood many people, thousands lining the streets to watch that slow procession. But some people breaking into applause, some people openly sobbing, people applauding. As I said, some people uh, almost wanting to show their gratitude in an appropriate way, just wanting to show some sort of emotion to acknowledge an historic moment, the like of which we will never see again.
1: Yeah, I'm curious about that. I, I was watching, you know, we've been watching the coverage all the way through, and it seemed over the last few days, it was very wrapped up in this what you just mentioned, this this is a this is a historical moment, this is a worldwide event, and people are being part of the history, and they're watching this go by, especially with the carriage today. But when you go in the hall and you watch some of the camera shots of these people going through, it seems like it's almost switched to the other side. It's very personal for some of these people. They come in, they mouth thank you, they sign the cross, they bow their heads to the coffin. I mean, this is for the people getting to say something to her.
5: And I think that you, you really summed it up well there with the words thank you, because I think That's what it is. It's a reverence. You you hear the expression of paying respects. And this is, I think, the biggest demonstration I've ever seen of people just wanting in some way to show their respect to a constant figure in our history, in our uh, our commonwealth, the head of our state for 70 years. You would have to be in your 80s to remember any kind of, of, of previous monarch before the Queen. Many of these people, and they are a real cross-section of British society, would have never known anyone else as our head of state, would never have known a period that wasn't this Elizabethan period in United Kingdom history. Uh, and, And that is precisely what they're doing. I think they are saying thank you.
0: Christo, how might you compare the feeling, the emotion today, to what we all saw in the aftermath years ago to the death of Princess Diana, much much the same or, from your perspective, different in some ways?
5: It's interesting. I've made a couple of comparisons to this because I think that is about the only comparable, perhaps, as well to the Queen Mother who died in 2002, though she was older. She was five years older at the age of 101. Um, Diana was, dare I say, perhaps a little more, hysterical in as much as that people were very much more surprised by her death and there wasn't really the focus for the outpouring of grief that we have perhaps seen with the Queen. I think the Queen, her death has been a little more reserved in as much as, that's not to say that people aren't as affected by it, but we have those processes in place, those those constitutional practices in place, those protocols, those particular ceremonial aspects that give people that focus in order to be able to work through their grief and say thank you. With Diana, we didn't have that because no one expected Diana to die. Diana, of course, didn't lay in state either. But you are right to say that that is a comparable moment when you look at the number of people, the amount of flowers, the fact that people want to do something But I think that this has been a lot more of a a dignified and reserved grief.
1: From London, Christo Fufas, a royal commentator, TV presenter there in the UK. Christo, thank you.
0: Getting back to the death of Queen Elizabeth, not everyone is in mourning. Some people are taking to social media to criticize the Queen over colonialism and the negative impact British rule has had over people of color in its empire over the centuries.
1: With us now is David Sheridan, history professor at Long Beach State, expert in 20th century British history. David, thanks for being here. So, yeah, we were remarking just yesterday this is a very complicated thing. Twilight of an empire, a lot of it dismantled during her time, but you can't separate the wealth from colonialism. You can't separate colonialism from violence. Uh, It didn't take any time at all to find the arguments on the socials. So how do you view this? And then we'll we'll start to pick it apart a little bit. Sure. Thanks
6: for having me on. Uh, You know, I think from the very beginning, you have to try to separate out the relationship of Elizabeth, the queen, uh, and as a person from Elizabeth representing the institution of the British monarchy and, you know, former head of this quite complex and quite large British empire. And so I think one of the you know, sort of central questions is, how do we sort of assess her legacy or assess the relationship of her as queen and the, the larger, very difficult legacy of British imperialism and the British Empire? And one of the things I think that's you know, certainly historically accurate is that imperialism and empire are often predicated and usually predicated on, on violence and the threat of violence. And so that is a part of the story. And it is a central part to how we try to assess the, the relationship of individuals and in leadership roles to, to, the, to the realms or to the kingdoms or to the states that they are in charge of or that they rule over.
0: David, what power did the monarchs have in running the empire in the 20th century, if any at all?
6: Right. So, I mean, I think in, in earlier periods of time, obviously, the, the, the monarchs had much more political power. And by the time we get into the 20th century after the death of Queen Victoria in 1901 and then moving to the various monarchs leading up to Queen Elizabeth II taking the throne in 1952, the political power of the empire, uh, the political power of the monarch had diminished considerably. Um, but she, of course, was still the, the head of the state and she was the head of the, of the United Kingdom and of the largest empire the world had ever known. So I think it's again, um, in terms of her own political role, not not very central in, in the major events that are taking place in the post-World War II era, but of course she was privy to the information about what was going on in the empire oftentimes, and her, her legacy is complicated by the fact that many times the British Empire was acting in ways that were very detrimental to the peoples and to the groups of people that they ruled over. Uh, during the time period of colonization and throughout the decolonization process of the 1950s and the 1960s as well.
1: So does it cut it to blame the prime ministers, to blame Her Majesty's government, or are there things that happened that she had to have known about because she was very knowledgeable about what was happening in all these different realms?
6: Well, I mean, I think ultimate responsibility probably lies with the government and the government officials and the prime ministers. Part of the problem for British historians and people who look and try to figure out what was actually happening during this period is we we don't know what happened in those weekly audiences between the prime minister and the queen or the prime minister and the king in the case of king charles now and so it's very we don't have historical records that can tell us exactly what she knew and what she was privy to but it's it's clear there's no exact evidence that links her with some of the systemic violence of the british empire we know of a couple of examples where she was, that there was uh, information that was withheld from her by prime ministers, uh, particularly in the late 1950s and the early 1960s, about the actions of the British crown in these various parts of the colonial empire as, as Britain was moving towards post-colonialism. So again, it, it's, I know it's not an easy answer, it's a complicated situation, but I, I don't think ultimate responsibility should be laid upon Queen Elizabeth II because her role uh, was largely symbolic. But then again, she was the head of state. She was the head of the British Empire. Uh, And I think you you can't separate those two
0: out. Do you think King Charles will in any way address this issue? And if so, would it help?
6: Well, I mean, I think Queen Elizabeth herself had tried to discuss some of these issues, especially her visit to India in 1997, which was the 50th anniversary of their political independence from the British Empire. And she's spoken about how you can't rewrite history, But she didn't really formally apologize. Uh, And then in 2011, she also visited Ireland. And as many people know, there's a very protracted and difficult relationship between uh, the United Kingdom and Ireland going back, um, you know, very long time, 600, 700 years, where she did actually attempt to apologize for the actions of the British Crown and the British government to the Irish people historically. So, you know, Charles is in a difficult spot, I think, because I think the expectation is going to be that he's going to more directly. Um, talk about these issues and create discourse about these issues. Uh, how he does it, though, of course, well, it remains to be seen.
1: Well, the speeches, they aren't theirs, though, right? I mean, those are written by Downing Street. So apologies we've seen. that's the government finally coming around and saying, okay, we need to do something about this because there's not plausible deniability anymore.
6: Right. I mean, I think they're largely written by ministers and by the by the existing uh, government in power. But, of course, you know, the monarch has to sign off on actually giving the speech. The monarch has to agree to actually say the things that are written. And uh, I don't think that the apologies are necessarily emanating from the Windsors themselves, from the from the monarchs, but they are a part of that dialogue uh, between the, the, the head of state and the government. And attempting to address these very complex issues. And I think Charles, I mean, if I would just say, you know, from terms of of Charles' position, I I think he's going to try to address these things more directly. We've just seen recently in Barbados in 2021 that they removed themselves as having the monarch as the head of state and became a republic. So I think those types of issues are going to be percolating more and are going to have to be addressed by both the crown and the larger United Kingdom itself.
0: Do you think we'll see momentum build to abolish the uh, monarchy, or is it, it support just too strong?
6: Um, yeah, I think, again, that's that's a really difficult question. That's been around for a long time. A lot of discussion uh, just, uh, came forward around the time of, of Diana Princess of Wales' death in 1997, when the popularity of the monarchy was at an all-time low, and Queen Elizabeth II was criticized in ways that she had never been criticized before in terms of her reaction to the death of Diana. Uh, I think, you know, based on larger feeling within the UK today, uh, I I think abolishing the monarchy is probably not going to happen anytime soon. But we do have very high sentiments, particularly in Scotland, which the sort of irony is that the the royal family loved Scotland very much. And of course, the Queen died at Balmoral at their estate in Scotland. But there's very high um, levels of republican sentiment within Scotland, and even concern about if Scotland is going to continue to be a part of the United Kingdom, of uh, the four, you know, uh, nations within the United Kingdom of you know England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. So, uh, we'll we'll have to see, I think. But I do think it's possible that issues related to republicanism and the possible. Uh, amending of the monarchy, or downscaling of the monarchy, or possibly moving towards a republic—I I do think those issues are, are, are coming down the line.
1: We mentioned how this was dismantled over her reign, in large parts transitioning to the Commonwealth. Credit due there for holding things together in that way, because positives did come out of this this new iteration.
6: Yes, I, I think so. I mean, she was so central to the transition from the British Empire to this post-colonial era. And she really read and understood the political dynamics of post-colonialism and post-coloniality uh, incredibly well. I don't, I don't think she's given as much credit as she deserves for that. Uh, and that was not an easy thing. And she did it for 70 long years, um, so that's for an unprecedented amount of time. And many of the, the the leaders of the Commonwealth were very interested in in discussing with Queen Elizabeth and and, and respected her tremendously. So. She should I think she should be given credit for her role in sort of helping the British Empire transition to this Commonwealth uh, and uh, and the abilities that she brought forward as a leader and as a symbol were very important in keeping those, those that tang- those tangible links going whether they will be able to, con- to continue under Charles's rule is, is, is another question as well
1: David Sheridan history professor Long
0: Beach State You're listening to KNX In-Depth. With Mike Simpson today, I'm Chris Sedens. The CDC has issued a
1: health alert about a common respiratory virus circulating this fall. It says there's been a rise in the number of kids in the hospital
0: with severe illness who have rhinovirus or enterovirus. The CDC says this could lead to a rise in a a rare but serious condition that can give kids polio-like muscle weakness. Dr. Daniel Aganjan is a pediatrician at Providence St. John's Health Center in Santa Monica. Uh, Doctor, thanks for joining us on In-Depth. Tell us first of all about this condition known as AFM.
7: Sure. It's good to be back on. AFM is a complication that's rare that can come from a certain virus called enterovirus. Uh, D68. And it causes different things such as arm or leg weakness, pain in the neck, back, arms and legs, difficulty swallowing or slurred speech, sometimes difficulty moving the eyes or drooping eyelids, as well as, um, like the face kind of drops or it was weak, weakened uh, and the muscles are weakened. Um, it's again, it's a rare thing that we have seen in the past.
1: Okay, so the word "rare" is good; it's comforting. Why the warning from the CDC this year, in particular, though? Because that's going to like worry parents.
7: Sure, the warning is meant more for healthcare professionals, uh, like me, you other know, pediatricians, in that when we start seeing kids that fit the scope of having enterovirus or rhinovirus, we have to always keep in mind in the back of our head that hey, can this be D sixty eight? Should we do more of a workup? So it. Because they're putting this alert out, it allows us to diagnose it faster and treat it faster as well.
0: What are the treatments for AFM?
7: Oftentimes, it includes things like IVIG, which is like antibodies uh, that can help, as well as sometimes steroids. Um, uh, And and the mainstay is also giving some time and watching the body fight it. Those Those are the main things.
1: Can it happen after routine illness, or does it always the kid's in the hospital and then you got to watch them? I mean, if it's if it's like recovering from a normal cold, then maybe mom and dad aren't on the lookout, but then what do they look for if that recovery doesn't go as expected?
7: Exactly. So pretty much almost all the time, over 99% of the time, when it's a living enterovirus. The they just get regular cold symptoms, cough, runny nose, fever, maybe some rash, um, the similar to hand footed mouth disease, is also caused by enterovirus. And the only thing that we tell parents, for example, if you start seeing that it's not like a regular cold, you know, like we said, it's some sort of the muscles are affected and and difficulty moving, that's when you should let your pediatrician know right away.
0: If you're a parent, how worried should you be?
7: You know, I tell parents, yeah, don't worry. Well, you just you just do the best that you can. Keep to the hygiene things, which are washing your hands and washing your children's hands with soap and water. Um, uh, after he's in the bathroom and before eating and teaching them not to touch their eyes, nose and mouth with unwashed hands. Um, Maybe perhaps not uh, encouraging so much kissing and hugging and and sharing utensils, especially if somebody else is sick at home, covering our coughs and sneezes. Um, If you're just doing all those things, you're fine. People say, do I have to, like, not go to birthday parties anymore and isolate? I tell them, no, listen, your kids have been through so much already with isolation and quarantining through the COVID pandemic. Let the kids be kids. Just encourage good hygiene. And again, because this is rare, we're not worried about it. And you, have, and you have to also realize the CDC, when they put out the alert, is that they're seeing an increase in the virus, antivirus disease, but they have not seen an increase in uh, the polio-like paralysis.
1: Have we kind of forgotten how we used to get sick? You know, for a while we were just dead set on avoiding COVID, wearing the masks and staying away from people. And now, you know, we catch colds again. Flu season's coming. We're getting warnings that, you know, it might be a bad flu this year. Um, this happens to us sometimes, even though when you do your best to avoid it.
7: Exactly. Life happens to you as best as you can. As as long as you're living our life with good hygiene and, and, and being happy, not anxious, because anxiety will lower your immune system and end But if you're happy and you're doing it with good hygiene, you're good to
1: go. Dr. Daniel Genjian, pediatrician, Providence St. John's Health Center in Santa
0: Monica. There's our quote of the day, life happens. Life happens. Yeah. Well, Christianity has been the dominant religion in the United States since its beginnings. In the early 1990s, as many as 90% of people in this country identified as Christian. It's been changing. Pew Research survey finds
1: in 2020, Christians accounted for about 64% of the population. This coincides with an increase in the number of people who don't affiliate with a religion. That number in 2020 was 30%, up from 16 in 2007. Reverend Keith Yamamoto is the rector of St. Mark's Episcopal Parish in Upland. Reverend, thanks for being with us. When you look out into the crowd, have you seen changes over recent years? Uh,
8: yes, um, I have seen changes. And um, I do think that people who identify as Christians, they are on the decline because, sadly, it's not just what's happening in the pews, but it's what's happening uh, out in the world and society and our uh, on our TVs that... Very sadly, the movement that we see to take away health care from women and trans people is unfortunately a Christian movement. And we've got white supremacy finding cover in Christian nationalism, and that distorts both democracy and faith.
0: That said, do these results in any way surprise you, the results from the survey?
8: Um, no uh because i would want to i myself would want to walk away if that was what the church was all about if that was what christianity is all about there is a lot of fear and shame and blame and uh, the zero-sum game as uh, with god's grace but that's not really what god's grace is all about the message of the church really needs to uh stay away from trying to protect power and privilege and get back to uh jesus's way of love that is a church worth going to
1: lots of religious minority talk about changing laws as you kind of mentioned i'm almost wondering if it's if it's like double for you do you think a small minority of the small minority like if if the church going is is getting less but it's just a small portion of of the christian right that are, are at the center of these movements is it almost you know paraphrasing here is it ruining it for the rest of you
8: Uh, it it makes it a challenge um but uh as it's been said you know uh, a small group of people is what has always changed the world so um it is something that we need to uh double down on and uh just really embrace uh what jesus's message of love and grace was all about and make sure that we bring it to the people who don't have a seat at the table who don't have a voice at the table and that is what especially um historic institutional mainline churches we need to do that we have to cash in our privilege and our power uh declining as it may be uh to make effective change
0: reverend is outreach an issue do you think churches need to do more to get people interested uh, in attending church and engaging with the new community of people
8: uh, yes, uh, definitely. There are things we need to pay attention to in helping the, the experience of, of Sunday worship uh, to be accessible uh, while still maintaining the, the mystery and the history uh, and the beauty. Um, but uh, certainly uh, the, the, a lot of the Christian message has been co-opted by the the the, loudest, uh, the uh, people who are very vocal.
1: There's something else in this poll when it comes to the the quote unquote nuns, the the non-religious people, that's how they're phrased in this. They mm. are younger. The average Christian is getting older and there's a lot of drop off like right when you get into your upper 20s and 30s. Why do you think that is?
8: Well, I think part of it is um uh, when we, when the when the church preaches that heaven is really about an eternal reward, it's about a pine the sky after I die. Uh, and has nothing to do with here and now. Uh, I think it, as a young person, it, it loses relevancy, but heaven is about how we help the least, the lost and the last right here, right now. So I think that, you know, the, uh, uh, I think the message of working together, do something positive about racial justice and creation care, about making a positive change with housing healthcare, and education if more well i will say the young people are leading that movement in the church and uh, what we need to get better at is making space especially on sunday mornings for young people or the weekend experience to make space for young people and let them have uh the traditional roles of, of leadership in all levels of the church
0: well, let me follow up on that about optimism. Are you optimistic that that young people can develop an interest in religion and the church? are you optimistic or somewhat pessimistic in oh, this in this I'm, day and age?
8: you know I, I, I am optimistic because uh the the the, the young people really are uh, uh on the front lines when it comes to uh the the, the, so, the social movements they are, They are leading the society, they will lead the church, and the church just has to be smart enough to make room for them in leadership and and to follow their lead. And so uh, the the church might not um, uh, the Christian church might not regain the the majority numbers, but I think what we will have uh, will be good enough. And, and uh, so I am very hopeful.
1: There's also a difference between being atheist and saying nothing exists and then being agnostic and wh- however you define that, saying, you know what, I'm never going to know, but maybe it's something or I'm spiritual or something along those lines. Do you think maybe more people are just moving into that category? Like, you know what, I think maybe maybe there's something after this or how did all this happen, but I don't or, know if any of these. I, or do
0: I need organized religion? Yeah,
1: I, I don't know if any of these religions are, are the right one, but something's out there.
8: Yeah, I, I think uh, definitely uh, when, when religion is about just eternal reward and is about a certain set of how to do, believe, and behave before you belong. Uh, yeah, I, I would be very hesitant with certain descriptions of God that support um, uh, oppression and, and injustice. So I, I, yeah, there's a, there are a lot of gods and a lot of versions of Jesus that I don't believe in either.
1: Reverend Keith Yamamoto, rector of St. Mark's Episcopal in Upland. Reverend, thank you. More in depth tomorrow.